0: I'm Jennifer Isabella and I'm Sharon Lever, your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Principal Analyst Brian Hopkins to discuss Forrester's CIO predictions for 2020. Welcome, Brian.
1: Hi, thank you very much for inviting
0: me. So, Brian, as we look to 2020, lots of uncertainty on the horizon. How does this frame the CIO's role and their transformation agenda For the coming year?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's actually a really interesting question. Um, It's kind of two pieces. Uh, First off, uh, our data tell us that 96% of CIOs are involved in some kind of transformation. So every CIO practically is is doing something around this idea of transformation. Uh, The idea of transforming your business with technology has been something that we have been talking about uh, for a long time. Uh, So you our, our clients have heard it. So the question really becomes is so so what's new? And I think the new new here that we really use to frame this research is the idea that the pace of business change and the sporadic nature of business change. I mean sometimes you're accelerating really fast, other times you're standing still. This uncertainty that's that's playing out economically, globally, and certainly the pace at which our clients are being pushed uh due in part to the changes that are happening within the technology landscape, um, that is creating an environment where uncertainty is, is, is the norm. So we really have to talk to our clients, and the way we frame this research around CIO predictions is you have to become not only able to cope with constant uncertainty, but you have to be the kind of company and the kind of CIO and start making the kinds of moves that, so that you can thrive in uncertainty. Right. And that's, that's, that's a tall order for a lot of our clients.
0: Yeah, because typically this type of environment has met cutting costs, driving efficiencies. So is it meaning something different in 2020 and beyond for CIOs?
1: Well, that's really interesting. The answer is yes and no. Um, I think that uh, the traditional, and we said this in the research, the traditional response for CIOs in times of uncertainty is to buckle down. We've got we to slim our costs. We've got to shore up our operating margins. We have to get rid of all that redundant technology. But at the same time, to become the kind of company we think that our clients need to be to thrive in uncertainty and to be able to pivot and shift and act with agility, you have to be able to modernize your core and innovate at the edge in ways that that you may not be ready to, which is one of the basis of a lot of the predictions we make, such as automating IT tasks, is is one of those areas in which we think CIOs are going to... uh, Uh, really step forward in 2020. And it's not going to be about cutting staff or reducing costs. It's going to be about automating certain kinds of tasks, Uh, level one, maybe level two support, simple technology provisioning, uh, knowledge work uh, using things like robotic process automation within the IT operations uh, domain so that the people that are freed up from the mundane tasks and move up the stack into things like DevOps.
2: And Brian, do you think that will work? I mean, we're freeing up some folks within IT and as you say, hopefully that means they're up-leveled to things like DevOps, but are they the right people to do that? Um, Are they skilled enough to be able to take on some of those newer uh, requirements to innovate?
1: I think that surprisingly, my answer is yes, uh, with some caveats. You know, I think in the past that's certainly been a concern. You know, you have the maybe the people in infrastructure that have been running your infrastructure for 20 years who kind of know all the scripts and skeletons and know how to push buttons and make things move. And in the past, the concern has been that, uh, um, these folks may be a little bit resistant to new ways of doing things or highly automated ways. But actually I think that that has changed substantially. Let me give you an example. Um, One of the things we've been doing uh, as a separate piece of research, myself and another analyst colleague, James State, is looking at this thing called edge computing. And we've gone very deep into it. And uh, one of the areas that is really blossoming around edge computing is this whole idea of running high performance application services um, out in edge environments. And, And not only telecommunications and cloud vendors, but the content delivery network providers, you know, the fast leads of the world. Um, These folks grew up um, building distributed infrastructure. I humorously joke at it so we can watch our cat videos on YouTube quickly. (laughs) But obviously they do a lot more than that. But they have this huge distributed infrastructure in which their their clients are starting to ask them, hey, can we build our system of engagement application components, our high-performance uh, a system of engagement uh, uh, components on your infrastructure because your infrastructure is close to where our customers are, and so I asked them naturally. I said, "So who who's buying? Who who's demanding this? Who's your customer for this kind of capability?" And interestingly enough, they said it's infrastructure operations people who used to run the content delivery networks who now want to develop these microservices to support systems of engagement on. Uh, On these platforms. So I see a lot of the the people that we used to think, well, these people don't have the skill. Really, what's happening is, is they've learned, they want to advance their careers, and they're learning how to step up. So I think maybe things have changed a little bit and CIOs are going to find that some of the resistance to change is broken down a little bit.
2: That's an interesting twist on the way we've thought about it in the past. Does that mean that the touted skills gap that's out there that CIOs are struggling with is starting to wane? Do they have more of the skills in house that they need to be able to thrive in 2020? Or are they still going to be clamoring um, and everybody trying to get the best of the best, but there's just not enough of them to go around?
1: I think there's still going to be a skills gap. It may not be as, it may not be the challenge that everyone thinks it's going to be. I do think one of the interesting things that we saw in the research, specifically when we talk about the, the interplay between CIOs and human resources, is that they take very different approaches to filling skills gaps. In the classic human resources approach to filling a skills gap is to put out a requisition, right? We need talent, the talent's out there. Let's hire somebody in that has the skills we need. And the problem, as you point out, and I don't think it's getting any, any better is that people who have the right resumes are getting snapped up and can demand the prices. So that going external to the market is not always the best approach. What we see happening is that um, CIOs who have access to the data about who's doing what within organizations because they're, they're working on all the systems in which people are doing work have visibility into where the talent pools, the hidden or latent talent pools in the organization might be. And this is going to give CIOs the ability to come back to it and say, maybe the way that we fill the skills gap is instead of trying to hire scarce resources, which we can barely find and barely afford, we should also complement that by looking at what different parts of our organization are doing with technology and building the skills that we need. So let me give you an example. Um, there's this vendor plural site, and, and um, they invited me to go to a conference a while back. And I was really interested. They're a learning management vendor, and so they provide such systems. But one of the things I found really interested in talking to them about some of the acquisitions they've made, and specifically how one of their large customers, Google, is using their platform, is, is this: um, they have acquired uh, an open source uh, software management tool, um, and that open source software management tool. The reason they've acquired it um, is called Git Prime. The reason they acquired Git Prime is because they see the relationship between looking at how people manage open source in the development projects and mapping that back to the training that they give to developers. And so they see the link between what developers do, how they code, and how they use open source in that code, and the training that they give developers. So what this starts to open the door for is to provide some insight into the link between how people are actually doing their jobs and the training you are giving them to their jobs. And the vision there um, that we kind of help them work on a little bit is how do you then make that data available for surfacing latent technology talent pools in your organization because technology talent is so hard to find. And so I've talked to that about a couple of other vendors as well that we've worked with, and that is how do you help your customers through the data? So I work with a lot of data analytics vendors, analyze who is doing what within your organization so that you can, as a CIO, come back and say, well, maybe we don't need to just hire a bunch of new people. Maybe there's some talent in the spaces where we need working over in some project over here we see what they're doing. Maybe they're using a lot of open source code, or we see the training that they're taking because they get to choose what training they want. And then we can start to say, well, maybe these people are better off, move to another part, to a more important project.
2: Sounds like CIOs need to take a page from some of the professional services companies, because that sounds a lot like what many of them do. Now, they have big complex systems that can do that, but to be able to Map to your point the the overt skills and also the latent skills of their employees. I mean, they're IP based companies, so that's why they do that. It's for the business. But I think I'm hearing you say that even CIOs and organizations um, that are not IP based might need to do that because of the skills shortage. And it's a really smart approach.
1: It, well, it is. And, and it, well, it also, I know you've written about this, Sharon. It's certainly something we've written about from a research perspective, and that is kind of the future. CIO organization, a future tech management organization. I think you call it a shape-shifting organization. Um, um, We we call it adaptive. Um, And I think that that's really important because I think CIOs need to take playbooks from, some or take their cues from what a lot of the services firms have learned. And, you know, how do you balance bench strength? You never know what client demand is going to come in. So how do you manage ongoing projects and having the bench strength for new projects and continuously training and elevating uh, your resources. I will tell you who's really good at this is TCS. And they had a I mean they they they're like four I was working I was working with them a while back at 400,000 people. Imagine being that big and still achieving double digit growth. And one of the ways they do that is they have a very very robust and automated program for recognizing talent, training talent, elevating talent, talent and hiring talent. And it gives them an enormous amount of flexibility that, frankly, a lot of CIOs we work with struggle within their organizations. And we think that's kind of an indicator of the future.
0: Is this also an org design question so that this could be seeing, understanding what talent is out there and not necessarily trying to fold them into the IT organization, but ensuring that you have the appropriate skills on the most important projects or initiatives, regardless if they roll up to the CIO
1: or not? I mean, we've written about that before in terms of you know, CIOs becoming more service brokers or brokers uh, coordinating, bringing the right talent to the right projects. But I think we put a fine point on that mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in some of our research in 2019. It's what uh, one of my colleagues, J.P. Gallander, writes about in terms of the future of work and creating a burstable workforce. Really, that's how do you combine the best of algorithms and machine learning and automation that you get through that with bringing the talent uh, to do tasks that humans have to do. How do you create that burstable workforce? And we think in 2020, that idea is going to resonate, and CIOs who understand the technology and have the kinds of needs that a burstable workforce could deliver on will start to experiment with that idea and really be able to source talent from both internally with with service providers and through acquisition and HR when needed. But we think that's going to start to happen. In fact, that was one of the things that we talked about in our predictions report.
2: Shifting gears here a little bit. I, I, I get um, the the people focus of CIOs has been, you know, I think it kind of comes and wanes over the years and it's been coming on strong over the past year or two um, because of the skills gap, because there's so, much, so many new capabilities that are required on an ongoing basis. But... The combination of that and then another trend that I know a lot of the research has been focused on, which is this this concern in general of firms um, getting into this mode of digital sameness and focusing so much um, on technology but just buying the same platform that everybody else has. And so you end up delivering the exact same experience that everybody else has. I'm kind of thinking of both of those together and wondering, God, what happened to the focus on technology that CIOs were supposed to have? I mean, uh, yes, people, skills, automation, all of those things are important in 2020. But what are they doing in terms of big tech investments? What's new for next year? Is there anything or is it same old, same old or just preparing skill wise and automation wise to be prepared for the next thing that may be a couple years out?
1: Yeah, there's a bunch of dimensions to that, Sharon. Um I think, yeah, I agree with the digital saying this, right? I mean, if I, it's been in our research, like 81% of firms we track in our customer experience index are uh, recording flattening customer experience indexes for like the third year in a row. Yeah, And Ted Ted Shadler was right on when he identified in his report that it's because all, all the tech leaders in these digital transformations are identifying the same customer pain and solving it with the same technologies. And frankly, digital has made fast following very easy, right? I mean, look how long it took. Once once USA um, gave us the ability to deposit checks, right, with our phones, it was like six months and every bank could do it. Um, same thing, a new feature shows up in United's mobile app and it shows up in Americans and Deltas because everybody's watching everybody else. Everybody's using the same technologies to solve for the same obvious customer pain. And you're right, it causes a lot of digital sameness. So we've been doing a fair bit of research around that. I want to come back to the people issue in a moment because I think it's relevant. But um, The research that we've been doing around that is really interesting. Uh, first off, we ran a survey of over 500 uh, uh, innovation management leaders and, and other senior C-level folks. And we looked at, we asked them a bunch of questions about innovation and we asked them a bunch of questions about how they were growing. And we identified a bunch of factors a bunch of correlations between how firms were thinking about their business priorities and how they were innovating and which firms were growing and were not. One of the things that we discovered, so we segmented these, these uh, responses into leaders, followers, and, and laggards. And we noticed that while laggards had zero growth, about one-third of our survey participants are 40%, a smaller, like 25%, were demonstrating growth at about three to four times industry average growth rates. And one of the huge differences we saw when we looked at these two segments, these two segments of, innovati- of innovation leaders, is that the leaders were 1,200% or 12 times more likely to prioritize business model change than the laggards, which weren't prioritizing at all. And when we really look at how firms are driving growth, we think the data shows us that growth is really happening when you differentiate long term. And simply following everybody's uh, mobile application or providing the same digital services is too easy, so it's replicated really fast. It doesn't create differentiation, and so it therefore doesn't create growth for long. The companies that are growing are actually driving innovation with technology to understand what's on the leading edge, be there ahead of competitors, and therefore how do technology changes enable new business models that create that sustained lasting differentiation and that really is 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 shaping out to be one of the keys for creating long-term long-term growth
2: so I want to dig into that a little bit because I think conventional wisdom is something you just said a lot of folks would would take issue with which is technology driven innovation um, you know not customer led innovation or you know business led Say more about that. I mean, is that reality? Is everyone ready for that? And and why the shift?
1: Yeah, well, very few people are ready for it. And I think, um, yeah, there's a lot in that. So first off, we think you can be technology-driven and customer-led. So our research isn't backing off customer-led as being one of the principles of customer-obsessed operations, right? Our research still shows that's a formula for growth. So if customers are leading you, what we're saying is, how do you use technology as a driver of those new differentiating value propositions that customers, future customers, or customer signals are telling you you might need? I know that term tech led, tech driven innovation sticks in a lot of people because it seems counterintuitive, and it goes back to what I said at the very beginning. The new new here is the fact that technology, through exponential advances in in, in Moore's law and Metcalf's law, and you know creating new. Infra- new types of computer chips new new networks 5 uh, uh, G's coming all these exponential accelerators have reached a point where we think that companies can no longer afford to kind of sit back and wait for the bleeders to bleed and then jump in with everybody else so we see companies from the uh, digitally advanced like Google investing in quantum computing even though there really is no proof that quantum computing is better yet, to uh, uh, an oil and gas company that we work with very closely that is very big into investing in a, a blockchain platform for, uh, for energy trading because they see the, the disruptive future if they're not on the leading edge of that investment. So we think that companies need to really flip their thinking around and say at least a part of your innovation effort needs to be <clears throat> rigorously experimenting with and maybe even assisting in the development of technologies that you can be on the leading edge of, because it's those leading edge companies that are going to claim the advantage that helps them accelerate. And the problem with fast following is if the leaders can always accelerate faster than the fast followers, the fast followers will never catch the leaders, right? So we think that's it's it's a subtle but different shift in, in the way that we think our clients need to think about how they innovate with technology. And simply kicking the tires Uh, trying to convince people in your business to adopt new technologies for incremental innovations and the programs and projects they're already doing that approach, which is what most folks do loses out to those innovators who are on that edge, really driving those disruptive changes and those new business models that lead to sustained growth. And that's, that's the difference. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, definitely. And is, is there a connection here? To what we were just talking about from a talent perspective, like if you're taking the time to try to find the right talent and you're doing that just through talent, you know, acquisition versus upskilling and talent development of existing talent, like there's there's a time lag there that you could be essentially wasting time trying to find the right talent versus spending the time now to upskill to get you to a point where you can be differentiating and experimenting and using that new technology.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And that brings me kind of back around to what I wanted to say about the people aspect of this whole thing. Um, one of the things that we see is the evolution of technology has essentially wiped away excuses of why things aren't working uh, and, and and left us with no other alternative than to face the people problems that... Uh, that are in organizations. Let me give you an example. Hadoop, um, bless, bless its heart, um, <laughs> was a very big deal. <laughs> was a very big deal uh, a few years ago and something I was certainly uh, part of tracking for a long time. <clears throat> and um, when we first um, wrote about Hadoop, when I started covering it back in 2011, 2012, it was taking customers, uh, you know, a year, 18 months to, you know, Understand the software, install the hardware, lay the software down, bring the talent in, figure out what to do with it. And then, oh, you had to kerberize the cluster, which means you had to secure the whole thing, which is a nightmare, right? So flash forward and, you know, by 2016, 17, you can get all that capability in the cloud in five minutes, right? So, it, it, and, and in fact, I wrote about that in a report in 2017 called Move Your Big Data to the Public Cloud and another one called The Cloudy Future of Hadoop. In which we pointed that out and we said, look, there's a big opportunity here that's getting missed by the Hadoop vendors. All their business is getting sucked away by the, by, by the cloud vendors. And that's exactly what happened. Um, so, my point being is the availability of, of technology, emerging and new technology that builds on top of big data and Hadoop and Spark and all those things in the cloud is unprecedented. Uh, my colleague, James Staten, just uh, wrote a report on emerging te- technology-driven innovation in the cloud. And his point was is that he looked at all these emerging technologies that we identified in our top emerging technology research, and he looked at the availability of those emerging technologies in the cloud, and he found that most, if not all of them, you could at least experiment with in the cloud. Uh, Amazon just made, a existing, uh, just made an announcement about providing access to quantum computing through their cloud, Falling behind Google's doing something similar, so on and so on. So if you can get all these emerging technologies that used to take years and minutes in the cloud, then you can't point back at the technology and say, oh, the technology is not mature. What you can do is recognize that you have a talent and a people and organizational and cultural problems that are much harder to change. So what we think is going to happen in 2020 is we think that CIOs, specifically advancements, are going to recognize that it's not the technology anymore, it is the people, that's the problem that needs to be solved. So they can drive innovation with technology, while still being customer led, which turns out to be the key to high growth organization.
2: So Brian, we talked a lot about the technology organization and CIOs and um, the skill issue, the technology issue. Are there some fundamental things about the CIO role? And I'm, I'm thinking specifically, I'll lead the witness here a little bit of, of the prediction that you and the team wrote about, about the reporting lines of CIOs and how that might affect their success in 2020.
1: Yeah, it's unfortunate, but it's true. I mean, our data shows that still about half of CIOs report to, to non-CEO executives. Um, So CFOs are the most common, COOs are in there as well. Um, And what we see is that the CIOs, because if you report to the COO, most likely you're going to be judged by operational metrics, how efficient, how well you operate. Or if you're reporting to the CFO, you're going to be judged according to your business case, right? What are you spending? What is it bringing in? How well are you doing? And these operational metrics miss something that we call kind of end-to-end thinking, and what we mean by end-to-end thinking is it's the customer experience is, yes, the customer experience, but delivering that gripping, excellent customer experience requires the end-to-end value. In other words, what I say is, look, you can have the best product on the world, but if it's not on the shelf, your customer experience is horrible. Your mobile app, if you're an airline, can be great, but if you can't get the, the, the flyer to the destination on time, which is an operational issue, your customer experience is going to be terrible. So we think that CIOs who are still reporting to CFOs or COOs, unfortunately, aren't going to be measured on improving that end-to-end customer experience, which we know correlates to growth or no growth. But we think the companies that are still having their CIO report to CFOs and COOs are going to have growth issues in 2020.
0: So we've covered a lot of waterfront in this episode, but... We'd love to hear your thoughts on what is one to two things that CIOs should be thinking about and doing in, in 2020 to set themselves up for success in addition to their firms.
1: When we look at CIO priorities and we look at kind of what our uh, leadership board CIOs specifically are asking us to uh, to tell them more about, uh, one of the things that keeps coming up is this idea of how do I scale agile to my business, right? And, and it, it's, Pretty understandable that that would be the case because CIOs are dealing with enormous amount of uncertainty that their business is dealing with, and so the answer to that is how do I be more flexible and agile in the way that I deliver to my business, and how do I take a product oriented approach to do to doing that? So things like scaled agile, kanban boards, safe, you name it, um, and that's really important. Uh, the, the advice that I give to CIOs when I talk to them about this thing is recognize that, that, that agile is only a foundation. Agile doesn't tell you what kind of business you should be. Agile only responds to uncertainty. And so we have this body of research that we're building out in Forrester called uh, the adaptive model. And essentially what we look at there is some data that suggests that companies and CIOs who build on that agile capability and start to build things like how to be insights driven. They start to build on how to invest in exponential technology to create these platforms that can help their business accelerate. They start to invest in the people aspect of how do I hire the right people or how do I find the right people? How do I burst my workforce? What you can think of these things is adaptive elements that sit on top of an agile foundation that sets their business up to adapt to a future that's increasingly unpredictable and coming increasingly fast. So I always push CIOs when I'm talking to them to think beyond just agile and how they're going to help their business become adaptive because we think it's these adaptive companies that are actually going to be the ones who succeed in the future.
0: Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.